0: The information conveyed in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for clinical advice or consultation. This is Dr. Mehul Mankad, and welcome to the Psychiatry and Law Podcast, Episode 8, Psychiatric Disability. What is a disability and how does it relate to mental health? Before I became a psychiatrist, it seemed to me that disability was purely a musculoskeletal issue. If someone could not walk and was in a wheelchair, then they were disabled. If someone could not use one or both of their arms, then they were disabled. It turns out that I was so, so misinformed. If we look at Social Security Disability alone... The United States government paid out tens of billions of dollars, that's billions with a B, in disability payments last year. And disability from mental disorders is the largest single category. If you add on workers' compensation insurance and private disability insurance, we're talking about some really big numbers. How common is psychiatric disability? Super-duper common. Some studies show that about half of people with any mental illness are currently employed. And among those with serious mental illness, more than a third are employed. If we flip the numbers around and look at all employed persons, about a third reported a mental disability. That's a lot of working people. That also means just because someone has a mental or physical illness, they're not automatically unable to work. That is awesome and kind of empowering. It turns out that different entities define disability slightly differently. One definition from the Social Security Act says that disability is the inability to engage in any substantial gainful activity by reason of any medically determinable physical or mental impairments which can be expected to result in death or which has lasted or can be expected to last for a continuous period of not less than 12 months. Boy, that's a mouthful. So what is an impairment? An impairment results from anatomical, physiological, or psychological abnormalities which can be shown by medically acceptable clinical or laboratory diagnostic techniques. Sometimes disability definitions require that the individual must be unable to perform occupational duties due to a medical problem. The devil is in the details here. What's the difference between substantial gainful activity and occupational duties? And are we talking about any occupation or their current occupation? The differences should be in the definition. The American Medical Association has some famous guides to the evaluation of permanent impairment. They have their own definitions of disability and impairment. You might want to check those out if you're going to do a lot of these types of evaluations. When you look at the difference in definitions between impairment and disability, you can see that clinicians are much better at figuring out impairment. We can give opinions about disability if asked, but sometimes we're just asked to leave that part to the entity making the final disability determination. Now that we agree on the ideas of impairment and disability, we need to sort out the role of a psychiatrist in disability evaluation. Psychiatrists can serve as consultants to answer disability-related questions. The answers to those questions might result in an employer making workplace accommodations or authorizing time away from work for treatment or even awarding damages in court. Just like in other types of forensic work, Disability evaluations can be standalone in-person evaluations or require review of records followed by an in-person evaluation. Who can request these evaluations? Well, employers can request them. Third-party disability insurance carriers can request them. Public agencies can request them. And don't forget that employees themselves may request them. Don't assume that the person who is asking for the evaluation pays for the evaluation, and don't assume that these evaluations are covered by regular health insurance. Do you have to be a forensic psychiatrist to do disability evaluations? No. Some exams are better left to experts, but there are just too many exams needed to hold them all to that standard. This is a good time to talk about dual roles, Sometimes a clinician can push back against a request for disability paperwork to be submitted. Why would they want to push back? Well, if your opinion differs from what the patient wants you to write, it can really harm the patient-physician relationship. Remember, with these forms of reports, you are an agent of truth. You're supposed to write what you observe and conclude, not necessarily what would make the patient happy. Now, sometimes you can't push back. Sometimes... The disability agency demands some input from the treating clinician. With the patient's permission, you might be able to satisfy this request by sending in some treatment records. In other instances, you may have to do more. Clinicians without much formal training in disability evaluation are often squeamish about participation. One of the many differences in framework between a clinical evaluation and a disability evaluation is that the disability evaluators are trying to figure out. If the person is safe to work, that would be a specific question to be answered, not a general question. So in a routine clinical psychiatric evaluation, you may think generally about whether a person is dangerous to themselves from suicide or dangerous to others from violence. A disability evaluator would need to know details about the job and understand if the employee's mental illness poses a danger to themselves or others with regards to their occupation. Do they handle dangerous or delicate machinery, for example? Or do they handle sensitive information? Another difference has to do with the relationship between the patient, the psychiatrist, and the entity requesting the evaluation. As with other forensic evaluations, it's best to clarify this special relationship before anything gets started with the patient. First of all, many evaluating psychiatrists don't even refer to the person being evaluated as a patient, they will call them the evaluee, or the employee, or something like that. For the rest of this episode, we're going to call the individual being evaluated the evaluee. The next thing that often happens is a declaration of lack of confidentiality. The evaluee is told that the expectation of confidentiality is void in this evaluation. Whatever they tell the evaluator can be used in the report. Many disability evaluators have a written consent document that spells out this non-confidentiality. Some people listening may think that this confidentiality waiver essentially allows the examiner to ask whatever they want and tell whomever they want. No, not really. While you do need to be thorough and comprehensive, you don't need to disclose information to the entity requesting the disability exam that is so unrelated to the examination that would be considered totally irrelevant or even ethically inappropriate. For example, let's take an evaluee being evaluated for her or his ability to work. And let's say that this person discloses a remote history of infidelity. That information must be considered carefully before it's committed to the report. If the disability case goes to court, then your report may become a matter of public record. In that case, it really will enter the public domain and might be viewable by the evaluee's spouse and children. Another reminder that is often shared with the evaluee is the evaluation itself is not therapeutic. The evaluee is not going to receive psychotherapy during the evaluation. The evaluator is not going to dispense medication as a result of the evaluation. Usually, The evaluator does not even share diagnostic or prognostic information with the evaluee. In some instances, the entity ordering the evaluation will expressly forbid sharing this information with the evaluee. Why? Well, the report and its information are the property of the entity ordering the evaluation, not the property of the evaluee herself or himself. These points should be shared with the evaluees every time, even if they're coming back for a repeat examination with the same examiner. The American Medical Association calls this a limited patient-physician relationship. You might think, hey, I told the evaluee that I'm not their doctor, so they can't come after me for malpractice, right? Well, I'm sorry to share with you that malpractice claims can be filed on a variety of grounds. Don't assume that your declaration of the non-therapeutic nature of the encounter would prevent all liability you are expected to act in a manner that would not cause harm to the evaluee. Also, evaluees can come after your license by filing an ethics claim. Let's talk a bit more about the nuts and bolts of the evaluation, shall we? As I mentioned earlier, the presence of an illness or mental illness does not automatically create a disability. And the presence of a disability does not automatically disqualify a person from working. For example, An office worker may have exercise-induced asthma that is well-controlled in the office environment and not be disqualified from work. However, the same degree of asthma may be unacceptable for a heavy labor position. Similar issues apply in psychiatry. In the end, it's all about the interplay between psychiatric symptoms and functional impairment. I felt like I had to use the asthma analogy because it can be hard to understand psychiatric disability on its own. When you're figuring out the impairment piece, it's always useful to get specific examples to support or refute impairment. Some people use the -the day-in-the-life approach. They ask the evaluee to start in the morning and describe with exacting detail how their day goes. You are listening for detail. If they're able to remember the relatively complex sequence of events to get themselves ready in the morning without help, should they be able to remember a similar sequence of events in the workplace? If they're able to interact with their family to whatever degree, can they interact with a similar degree with co-workers? People who describe difficulty sleeping should be able to give concrete details about their insomnia. How many total hours do they sleep? Do they have initial, middle, or terminal insomnia? What are their naps like the next day after sleeping poorly? Every reported symptom should come with some sort of story that the evaluee can share without much prompting. Besides a thorough psychiatric examination, it's typical to review records or obtain collateral information. You want to embark on these tasks with full knowledge of the people ordering the evaluation. So don't go calling up the evaluee's coworkers or relatives without the right permissions. When speaking with collateral sources, you want to try to establish a timeline if a specific workplace event or injury is part of the claim. What was the evaluee like before the event? Did the collateral source witness the event themselves? And how has the evaluee been after the event? If you do get information from collateral sources, it is critical to indicate who provided the information and their relationship to the evaluee. It's nice to put their narrative in quotes to separate it from your own gathered facts. Records are the other collateral source. At the very least, most disability exams will come with some sort of job description. You really need to know what the job requires before giving an opinion as to whether the person can do the job or not. You might get performance evaluations from the employer. Obviously, you're going to look for any changes or trends in their job performance over time. Did the performance change suddenly around a specific time frame? Does it match the narrative you get from the evaluee or collateral interviews? You might get medical records as well. As with collateral interviews, you might want to summarize those or put them in quotes. Just be deliberate when you're documenting these sources as they carry a great deal of weight. There are a few other sources of information you might receive, but these are less common. They include school records, letters of support from friends and family, or personal statements written by the evaluee. Once in a while, particularly if the stakes are high, you will get data from a private investigator. This might include a written report, surveillance footage, or some combination of things. Once you are done with the information gathering from the evaluee and from all the other sources, it's time to sit down and consider your opinions. Most of the time, you are asked for an opinion that is held to a reasonable degree of medical certainty. That's legal speak for 51% certain. If you remember our discussion about the standard of proof, it's the same standard as the preponderance of the evidence. Oh, and only answer the questions that you are asked by the entity requesting the examination. Sometimes you are asked to opine on the quality of the treatment the evaluee is receiving. Sometimes you are expressly told not to opine on treatment. Read the questions in the cover letter carefully. Are the explanations for the impairment logically consistent? are there other possible explanations for impairment? For example, if the evaluee has had stressful social problems during the time concurrent with their occupational decline, could that issue be the primary factor? Another possibility may include lack of adherence to treatment for a known psychiatric disorder. So if a person has a previously diagnosed condition and has stopped their treatment for it, their current impairment may have a reversible element. That's a very different conclusion than treatment failure. The same would apply if a person was inadequately treated for a potentially impairing condition. We need to mention the elephant in the room, malingering. There's a separate episode of this podcast specifically devoted to malingering. However, it suffices to say that malingering is certainly a concern in any evaluation that involves disability payment and the possibility of malingering should be considered each and every time. Remember that malingering includes complete fabrication of psychiatric symptoms and also something called partial malingering. Partial malingering is exaggeration of known psychiatric symptoms. Sometimes, people use the idea of psychiatric disability in a very creative way, and I suppose you could consider that a kind of malingering. While they may or may not be seeking financial compensation for a reported disability, They may say that their psychiatric disorder was the reason they committed an inappropriate or unethical act in the workplace. While it's possible that something like that could happen, one must also consider other hypotheses. Examples that often make the news headlines are professionals or celebrities who are caught in sexually compromising situations and then report that bipolar disorder or sex addiction caused their behavior the employer or disability carrier will need evidence that the disorder existed before the compromising event happened. If there's no history, the circumstances may be too convenient. And of course, the court of public opinion will do whatever it does in those situations without regard for the finer points. If you ever do clinical work, you're going to get involved with these questions about disability sooner or later you really can't bury your head in the sand forever on this topic. One thing to consider is that disability exams requested by different entities are slightly different. So an exam from the Social Security Administration is different from a workers comp exam. And that's different from an independent medical exam requested by a private disability insurance carrier. And those exams are different than a fitness for duty exam. It's essential to know which exam is being requested that entity's definition of disability, and any specific elements that must be included or excluded as part of that exam. Who knows, you might find these sorts of exams interesting and offer yourself to participate in them as part of your clinical practice. Given the burden of psychiatric disability worldwide, competent and objective mental health evaluators form an essential part of the fabric of our occupational landscape.